following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Well, we have been taking an up-close-and-personal look at real Christianity in Romans chapter 12. What lives transformed by Jesus look like? What does it look like to live the gospel? And so today we're in Romans 12, 14 to 16, and we're going to see a picture of courageous love, courageous love, and how Jesus calls for and enables courageous love in his church. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me, I'm going to read God's word, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 16, give a little bit more of the context, but we'll be looking at verses 14 to 16 today privilege to open up the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, the authoritative word of God. So hear the word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. And Lord, we thank you for your word and I just want to right off the bat confess that myself and and really probably all of us, we know we have fallen so far short of what I just read. And it is only by your grace and your mercy that we can live and, and move and have our being. And I pray, Lord, today you would have your way in our hearts, our homes, in your church. All for your glory. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you probably have all sorts of ideas in your mind when you hear the word courage and what that really means, what that really is. We're talking today about real courage. And I would just say to you today that real courage is in short supply. We live in a time when courage is routinely miscategorized and misapplied and people are called courageous for doing something that they will be congratulated for by the majority. They will be applauded by many people and they're called courageous, but it takes no courage to go with the flow. We live in a time even where it's easy to join a crusade and to align with like-minded individuals and to shun those you disagree with with a click and a swipe. And often we think after we've done that, we have done our Christian duty. And we are really mistaken. Real Christianity is marked by courageous love. And it's going to be essential for us to understand this because it's essential for us to accurately live the gospel and trust God to produce the outcomes that he intends as he works in and through us for his glory, how the the outworking of the gospel message 
that's been explained in Romans chapters 1 through 11. In fact, you can sum that up in, in three words. Jesus saves sinners. And you can sum chapters 12 through 16 up in three words. Sinners serve Jesus. Jesus saves sinners. That's the first part of Romans. And then you see what it looks like for people to serve Christ. What does it look like to live the gospel? Now, what would it look like if you were courageously following Christ? I mean, would you fight with wild beasts? Uh, Would you um, slay giants? Would you conquer kingdoms? Would you rebuild walls? What would you do? And I think we all know that it looks a lot more mundane than that. It looks a lot more simple, a lot more regular, a lot more daily, a lot more ordinary. But it is supernatural to live courageously following Jesus. Believers are called to love in a courageous way. That you are called, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're called to be bold and to think and to think through your actions and and push through the tendency that, that we all have to not do what is required because of the fear of man. I mean, all through redemptive history, God has called for courage in his people. You see, Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and others were told, and this was the Old Testament phrase, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And it was always in light of of, you know, unspeakable odds. But the assurance that always came with that was because I, the Lord your God, is with you, or am with you. I'm with you. This God gives his people the assurance that he is with them. So you can be strong and courageous because God is going to give you strength. He's going to fight for you. He's going to lead you and guide you and protect and provide. Joshua was to lead the people after Moses exited the scene, and he was not to be timid because God was with him. Over and over again, God is assuring his chosen servants, I'm with you. In the Gospels, Jesus reminds his disciples seven different times, and the phrase in the New Testament is, take courage, take courage, to be encouraged and strengthened to do what pleases God against all odds. Here's Peter walking on the water to Jesus. Here's Paul walking by faith in the midst of persecution. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're always of good courage. We, We walk by faith, not by sight. But the common denominator in all of it is that the Lord himself was with his people and was to be the object of their God-given, God-sustained faith. That as a believer, you're to keep your eyes on Jesus and not fear outward opposition. That is key. That as you live this life, trusting Jesus Christ, who saves you from sin, that you trust him as you serve him. As we saw, all who believe in the the finished work of Christ, all that believe the gospel, all who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin, they yield themselves fully to him. On a daily basis, it's a continuing thing. Lord, my life is yours. Lord, your will be done. Lord, I can't do this. I can't do anything apart from Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That should have a trickle-down effect into 
all the areas of our life. We know, most of us would be like, well, then I'm a, a, you know, an abject failure because this week it didn't trickle down. It, it, I stopped the flow. I, I didn't obey. I, I, I don't feel courageous. I know it's supposed to show out in my relationships. I know it's supposed to show out in my attitudes and in the way I live. I know it's supposed to show out in the body of Christ and with unbelievers right where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, but I guess I'm an abject failure because I haven't really been very courageous this week. And here's the way it goes. Where others faced wild beasts and giants and enemies in the land, that same courage for a believer, knowing that God is with you, is to be applied as you really navigate and battle your propensity to wander away from the Lord, your propensity, your proneness to go away and and not obey, and as you navigate with those who perpetuate evil. Because real Christianity yields itself to God. It surrenders itself to God. It bows before the, the sovereign Savior of the universe under the mighty, omnipotent hand of God with real people by their side. You don't do it alone. Real Christianity is lived in the power of the Spirit of God with other people, with the authoritative Word of God at hand, and you acknowledge the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Real Christianity is lived in courageous obedience with no resistance in your heart against the Lord where you say, I'm going to trust the crucified, risen, returning Savior. What we're going to see today in Romans 12, 14 to 16 are four courageous virtues. Four courageous virtues that will help us in this Christ-honoring quest. Four courageous virtues lived in ordinary life that have extraordinary consequences, extraordinary outcomes, because God uses these things to build his church. Let's look at the first one. The first courageous virtue In verse 14, it's mercy. Mercy. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So right off the bat, you're being told to do the exact opposite of what you want to do. Like, wait, you just cursed me? We're taking this outside. To bless means to invoke God's blessing on them. And it calls for a habitual action here. You're to continue to keep on blessing them. To curse means to invoke a curse upon them. And it's, these are in the present imperative, and this is with a negative. It's forbidding the habitual action. It's saying, stop cursing those who persecute you. The very thing you want to do, stop doing it. The attitude of believers that we are to have for those who persecute us and oppress us is to be one of blessing, not cursing. When you're facing a personal opponent, you're to bless him. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. We're to speak words of blessing. We're to speak Gracious words. That's not the first thing that comes out of our minds sometimes. Out of our mouths sometimes. 
We just don't do it. But see, we're not to respond with a vengeful spirit to get revenge, which is what we want on those who bully us. We want revenge, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to speak to and treat people kindly. Not just treating those who treat you kind kindly, but those who persecute you treat them kindly. That's the hardest thing to do in the whole world, isn't it? Can we be honest? It's the hardest thing to do in the whole world. To have mercy. There's an interesting play on words here with verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says we're to pursue hospitality. Literally, it means persecute hospitality. Okay? Chase hospitality down. We saw this last week. Look for every opportunity to be hospitable and actually chase down opportunities to surprise people with your hospitality. Not just when you're asked, not just when you see the name on the list, but you're like looking around because you're aware of people's needs and you are observant and you're like, I'm going to go help them. You're going to chase that down. Now the tables are turned. Verse 14, and when the tables are turned, believers are to, are to respond in a radically unnatural way to those who chase them down to do them harm. So what you're supposed to do is wish your persecutors well with kind words rather than calling for the destruction of their life with words of abuse. Now some Christians are like the Cobra Kai's in Karate Kid. No mercy, ever. No way will I let you off the hook. You will pay and pay dearly for what you did to me. Whether it's your real or your perceived transgressions. Even in the church among our brethren. Talking behind backs. Gossip. Slander. Backbiting. Causing divisions. And words can hurt you. Words do hurt you. And we have to be very careful, don't we? We have to be very, very careful. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. We have to guard our hearts in these matters, don't we? We need to guard our hearts. But a lot of times, here's what we'll do. Oh, yeah, I got to guard my heart. Protect myself from being hurt. That's not the biblical way. That's not the, the real Christianity way. See, when we say, oh, I got to guard my heart, I'm we're usually saying, I'm just going to protect myself from getting injured. No, no, no. No, guard your heart from being judgmental and bitter and closed off from the very people that God is wanting you to come near to to bless them. And who are those very people? The people that are persecuting you. Basically, it's like don't get hardened in your hearts towards people. Continue clinging to Christ. Beseech him to, to move in people's hearts. Beseech him, beg him to solidify your convictions and help you not to waver, but stay tender-hearted towards people. What do we do? Our natural inclination is, I'm just going to push them out of my life. I'm just not going to do anything good towards them. I'm just going to stay away from them. And, and we're being told here to actually, actually chase them down to do them good. Ask yourself, how has... Jesus changed my heart. 
How has the gospel transformed me? Why is it so easy for me to be vengeful? What encourages me to be merciful? For me, it's knowing that the Lord is merciful. Lamentations 3 tells us God's mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is very great. We need God's mercies every day. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. They will be shown mercy. That's the hardest beatitude. We're told that God is rich in mercy. This is why he sent Jesus to die for our sins. That his blessing is upon the one who runs to him for mercy. And his curse is upon the one who rejects and refuses mercy. James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's talk about mercy and judgment. Let's talk about justice. Everyone wants justice for someone else. You know what justice is? It's where you get what you deserve for your transgressions. It's what you, where you get what you deserve for your sins. Do you know what mercy is? It's where what you deserve is held back from you. That the wrath of God against our sin is held back from us in Christ because Jesus took it at the cross and God drew us by his mercy and grace and we responded to the gospel message and believed in Jesus Christ. Justice pays back wrath. Mercy holds back wrath. And all who come to know Christ, all who come to Christ by faith, they are kept by Christ because of his mercy. Do you realize that even now, the the wrath of God against your sin, believer, is, is held back because of the shed blood of Christ? I've said this so many times, but if if you refuse Christ, your sins are on you, you're under the wrath of God. If that's you today, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in his finished work. Believe that he died on the cross and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he's coming again. Justice pays back wrath. Mercy holds back wrath. That all who come to Christ receive mercy and are kept by Christ. Christian, is your mercy quotient flagging today? If so, get your nose into the word of God. Read, read Habakkuk. You know what the theme of Habakkuk is? God's mysterious ways explained in one line. One line. Cried out in a prayer. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Oh Lord, I have heard the report about you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. he's, He's begging God to do what he said he would do back in the garden when he promised that Christ would come. Genesis 3.15, he's saying, Lord, in your wrath against our sin, remember your mercy. So for a believer today, to trample on the mercy of God and not show mercy is a travesty. See, mercy costs. Oh, if you want to be merciful, it's going to cost you dearly. It costs Christ dearly. It costs Christ his 
life, to convert rebellious wills, cost Christ crucifixion. So on a far lower level, for you not to curse back, but for you to give a blessing instead is gonna cost you your pride. It's gonna cost you your selfishness. It's gonna cost you your vengeance. Where, where you will let it go and, and you will be repentant in your own heart and you will seek repentance because mercy is the way. That is the way of Jesus. Bless, don't curse. We cannot do that unless we belong to Jesus, unless we're truly saved. And if you belong to Jesus and you are truly saved, you will be merciful. You're not being merciful to earn mercy, but because God gave mercy, had mercy on your soul. All those who are really saved become merciful people. And that at the judgment seat, at the, when, you stand, when you stand before God on the last day, it will be shown that you belong to him and you will receive mercy on that day. It's a courageous virtue modeled by God, our our merciful God creates merciful people by his mercy. If you are merciful today, if your heart is tender, if your heart can actually get to the place where you bless instead of curse, praise God for his mercy upon your life. Now, the next courageous virtue is in verse 15, and it is empathy. Empathy. We move from mercy to empathy. Look at verse 15 with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Probably the most well-known verse in Romans. If you start with rejoice with those who rejoice, everybody can finish that sentence. And weep with those who weep. It presupposes that a lot of both are going on. A lot of people are rejoicing. A lot of people are weeping. Rejoice and weep. Celebrate and lament. We, we rejoice over lots of things. You, you get married, you have a baby, you get a new house, you get a new car. Someone gets saved. Somebody repents. This is happy, this is exciting. Yes, often we will misapply it, we will misunderstand it. Some people rejoice in the wrong things. Some people weep over the wrong things. But there is a biblical rejoicing and a biblical weeping. Look at the first phrase. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That comes first. Old Testament, a lot of rejoicing. Isaiah 66.10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, all who love her, rejoice with her joy. This is rejoicing over Jerusalem's restoration because of the grace and mercy of God. You see the New Testament, you've got rejoicing at the birth of John the Baptist. You've got rejoicing that your names are written in heaven. There is rejoicing before the angels of God when a sinner repents. You've got rejoicing in the return of a wayward son. You've got an Ethiopian eunuch getting saved and rejoicing. You've got rejoicing at hearing about people getting saved. You've got Gentiles rejoicing and and magnifying the word of God. You've got rejoicing in being encouraged. You've got rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing at the proclamation of Jesus. Even Paul He says in Philippians 2, 17 and 18, I'm rejoicing if I'm getting poured out and spent. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. You should be glad and rejoice with me. 
We see in the Bible rejoicing in the Lord, even rejoicing in suffering because we know that it builds endurance and uh, perseverance. We are told to rejoice always. We we, we will even rejoice in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.7. But we know clearly what we are not to rejoice in. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Do not rejoice in unrighteousness. Don't rejoice in evil. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. If they're rejoicing in the right things. Right? It is the toughest thing. There's a reason why this is first. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Because learning to rejoice with the rejoicing is harder than weeping with those who weep. Chrysostom said this. This is first because rejoicing is more difficult. We will shed sympathetic tears with the suffering, but we will envy and compete with those who do well instead of rejoicing with them. I mean, think about our propensity to be jealous over other people's joy, and then we celebrate their misfortune. The only counteraction to that is to confess our own sins and confess our own selfishness. Think about it. Sin generates weeping and mourning and lament. Salvation generates rejoicing and celebration and gladness. Think about relationships in the faith among believers in Jesus Christ. This is an imperative here. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. And they're concrete indications of courageous love in the body of Christ. Look at that phrase, weep with those who weep. The psalmist said it well, Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. But as we all know, the weeping doesn't always just last a night. And sometimes it's a season. Nehemiah wept. Job wept. Jeremiah wept. Jesus wept. Paul wept. Jesus said, blessed are those who weep. It's the, it's the, it's the one who weeps and mourns over their own sinful condition. They weep over sin and sinfulness. This whole idea of of rejoicing and weeping with those who rejoice and weep is that you are other-oriented instead of self-focused, that you actually pay attention to those around you and your emotions get put aside, that you're not self-absorbed, that you're empathetic with joys and sorrows of others, that you share in the joy and the sorrows of others, that you, you truly do, that you regard their circumstances as more urgent than your own. It's like in the emergency room. You walk in, you know, and my knee kind of hurts a little bit. Well, you're going to wait for a while because there's people with bigger needs. And that you look around the church and you go, wow, there are, there are people whose needs are going to go before my own. I'm going I'm to think of others as more important than me. This is what real Christianity does. It's live in the trenches with real people, with real issues, wielding the sword of the Spirit and trusting the Spirit of God and leaning on the one true God. Will you want a heart that, that empathizes and, and sits with people in their moment of need and, and claps with them when things go well? If you're going to weep with the, with the weeping, though, you're going to need to learn to appropriately lament. Sometimes we get the impression that, well, everything should just turn out in ways where we look like we're happy and glad and celebrating. 
And because of the gospel, yes, you can take the worst situation and, and still praise God. But we can't pretend that lament and weeping is not a part of life. I went to go visit a friend in the hospital, and they had been crying. Now, walk in the room, and there's no way to hide it. I mean, the, the, the eyes were swollen and red. They saw me and paused. They're like, uh-oh, my pastor friend caught me crying. But the interesting thing was they weren't crying because of being in the hospital. They weren't crying because of their physical ailment. They were crying because of a relational issue that was really weighing them down. And they told me about what was going on. And it was, again, unrelated to why they were in the hospital. And I lamented with them. I I heard the story and acknowledged the reality that, yeah, that would make anyone sad. And we had talked appropriate approaches to the situation. They knew all the answers. They, They knew that. But they needed someone to listen to them and to bear the burden and to empathize and to understand and to then process with them even the things they already knew. And what happened was, here's the thing, you know, we, we talked, we read the Bible, we prayed, but here's the thing, the eyes were still red and swollen. The situation hadn't been addressed, it was still the same, but God had, had used those moments to, to shift the perspective in such a way that there was a glimmer of hope. And there was a, a, a glimmer of, wow, this could, could work out all right. And maybe even a resolution of, well, here's what I'm going to do. But that's the kind of sweet fellowship that God gives you in the body of Christ. That you rejoice with those who rejoice, you weep with those who weep. And we get to experience that with our loved ones in Christ. What a gift of God's grace. This is what real Christianity does. It gets face-to-face and heart-to-heart. It walks hand-in-hand with people through real things, through persecution and grief and sadness and gladness of heart with the love of Christ and with the word of God. And these are courageous virtues, empathy, courageous love. You got mercy, you got empathy. If you're doing that, that's very courageous. Now, let me give you the next courageous virtue we'll see it in verse 16 first part of the verse harmony harmony that's what it says live in harmony with one another you know be unified you know what paul was getting at here he's anticipating the tensions and probably addressing the tensions of jews and gentiles being in the same church you know you're worried about someone whose personality kind of bugs you they're worried about man i got Jews in here, they're looking down on me, and I got Gentiles who didn't put in the work. I mean, seriously, that's what happened at the, in the early church. The Jews were like, hey, Gentiles, you didn't put in the work. You're not even from the family. I can't believe you're getting grafted in. I can't believe you're getting adopted. And then some time goes by, and, and the Gentiles are like, hey, Jews, you swung and missed. You missed out. Paul saying you live in harmony with one another, Jew and Gentile alike. You think you got problems with people? Think about what their problems were like. They were dealing with, you know, centuries of issues with one another. This is why the church needs to reflect the community. Whoever lives in the community ought to be welcomed into the church. Harmony, by the way, is not so much agreeing with one another on everything. Harmony here 
is thinking the same way about one another, where you say everyone has equal value and worth. But there are things that ruin harmony. First thing I think of is pride, right? Pride ruins harmony. We think we're better. We think others are lesser. We don't want to engage relationally. We're not willing to forgive. We won't let things go. Someone has hurt us, and and then we say, well, I'm going to think about them in a negative way every time their name comes up. We're not able to accept it. It might be where where you don't want to give somebody help because they're the wrong person. Well, if, if someone I like would need help, I would help them. Maybe, maybe your pride is I, you don't want to take help from anybody. You know, you can just do it on your own. You got an opportunity to help somebody and, and they turn you down and they won't let you help and that's the other end of giving, right? Receiving, you got to receive graciously. Part of harmony is receiving help when you need it. When that happens to me and someone turns down, I just find a way to help them. Chase them down with something good. Maybe even find a way to make them think that they came up with the idea. But what you got to do is keep working with each other. And love works through and around issues. Love covers a multitude of sins. So they were porcupiney. Well, just give them a hug. Yeah, you're going to get cut a little bit. But you find a way to help in some way. Christian community, true fellowship, this is what we do. We share our life and our resources. This is what we do. Judging ruins harmony. You're always judging people and they're just not this and that and the other. Oh, your words are powerful and so are your thoughts and they must be seasoned with grace. Is the easy road to you know, take, the, take the low road and just speak evil of one another and others or think evil of other and one another's? It's, it's your choices. We're gonna get into Romans 14. Gotta get through 13 first, but we're gonna get into Romans 14. It's all about, one of the parts of it is don't judge your brother. Don't judge him. The other part of Romans 14 is another thing that ruins harmony, stumbling people, causing people to stumble, leading other people into sin. So the question you got to ask is, what am I doing that fosters harmony in the church? What am I actively doing to foster harmony in the church rather than housing this unhealthy hostility towards people? What am I doing? It's amazing, just simply amazing what God in his grace can do in our hearts when we yield to him and we don't care how we look or what people think about us. We just share and we love and we forgive and we work together. Courageous virtues, courageous love, mercy and empathy and harmony. Now let's get to the next one, the last one. Next one is, it's a courageous virtue and it's in, it's in the last part of verse 16. It's humility, Humility, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So yield all to Jesus and humble yourself. We want to be high and exalted. We're supposed to be low and humble. Uh, The Bible continually warns us against arrogance. Don't view yourself better than others. Haughty here, this haughty thoughts refers to this inappropriate pride that fails to recognize our own sin and, and reliance upon God's grace. And it says, don't be led away with that. You know what that pictures? A flood sweeping everything in its path. Don't be led away in your mind thinking that you're better. Caught up in your own importance. You forget about uh, climbing social ladders. Uh, you just make the humble concerns of others your concerns. You bear the burden. You don't think you're wise. Matthew 18, 
Jesus' disciples come to him. It's a well-known scene. But here's what they do. They come to Jesus and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're not saying, hey, Jesus, you are. They're saying, which one of us can be? And he calls to them a child. And he puts him in the midst of them. And he says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn, unless you repent and become like children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You mourn over your own sin. And you, you rejoice in God's mercy and grace. And you, you know, it says associate with the lowly. It doesn't mean like you have a list and it's like, well, here's all the lowly people I'm going to help this week. No, associate with the lowly is like give yourself to humble tasks. Give yourself to humble tasks. Be content with humble things. Proverbs 3, 7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshments to your bones. Like, if you are wise in your own eyes, it will destroy you. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You, want to bl- you know what obliterates inappropriate pride? It's being self-aware. But if you're the first person to raise their hand and say, I'm, I'm self-aware, I'm the most self-aware person, no, you're not. <laughs> An accurate God awareness destroys my acute lack of self-awareness. You, you only get a God awareness by acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and soaking in the authoritative word of God, and yielding to the spirit of God, to the indwelling spirit. You get it by thinking biblically about yourself and others. You notice that in the, this, this verse, there are thinking words used a lot. There are thinking words used. You need to think through and decide to live in humble harmony in the body of Christ. These are courageous virtues. These virtues, they signify courageous love in the body of Christ. Mercy and empathy and harmony and humility. They should mark your life. They should mark your family. They should flavor us and shape us as a church. It takes courageous love to be a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. It it takes courageous love to say, we're going to do God-centered worship, not man-centered worship. We're going to do Christ-centered preaching, not man-centered preaching. We're we're going to be intent on God-dependent prayer. And and we're we're going to seek gospel-changed relationships. And we're going to do multi-generational ministry where all ages are welcome. And we're going to honor Christ in our service. We're not going to put ourselves on a pedestal. We're going to be God-confident, though, as we reach out with the gospel. And we're going to be humble and bold in our leadership, and we're going to call each other to that. We're going to not be deterred by pain. We're going to not be deterred by danger. We're going to be brave, courageous. Now, in your life, you might say, well, you know, people are telling me I'm too young or too old to, to be courageous the way that the world defines courage or even the way the church sometimes defines courage. And I just want to submit to you today that if you practice these four virtues with, an, with, a, with a humble heart, you are courageous. It takes courage to go against the flow, 
to say no uh, to the slippery slope of complaining and, and judging and, and taking revenge. And I just want you to know that if you do this, brace yourself for being called weak and fragile and insecure and insensitive and inauthentic and unrealistic and other things if you want to live this way. That you'll be misunderstood and miscategorized and mistaken, but just remember who your king is. Courage, though, is not done alone. It is a team effort. It's a team effort. You see, Christ and his church working together on a common mission with our eyes fixed on Christ is the way it's supposed to go. I think of the Apollo 13 uh, space mission. It was the, the seventh crewed mission in Apollo's space program, and it was the third one that was planned to land on the moon. And it launched uh, from uh, Kennedy Space Center on April 11th, 1970. And the lunar landing, though, they didn't land on the moon. It was aborted because there was this oxygen tank in the service module that exploded two days into uh, the mission. And so what they did is they just looped the moon and came on back. They actually made it back. They returned safely to Earth on April 17, 1970, six days after they launched. And in subsequent interviews, the crew was asked, like, what were your thoughts once you realized you might not make it back to Earth? And it was, it was awesome what they said. They said, we didn't dwell very much on not making it back. We spent so much time looking for and applying solutions to our problems, we didn't have time to think about that. I mean, we were well-trained. We knew the capabilities and limitations of our spacecraft. And then they said this, mission control in Houston kept giving us updates, kept sending us instructions and ideas to fix things. So they said we never lost hope because we were focused on the task and didn't run out of ideas. So in this gospel mission we're in, we have the God of the universe with us, living in us, empowering us, and we get to fix our, our thoughts on Jesus and never lose hope because Jesus is gonna get us home safely. And, and yes, life is a spiritual battle and we are, we are gonna constantly have to address problems. But what do you do to get well prepared? You focus on Jesus, you get grounded in the word, you, you pray, you fellowship, you work together with other Christians. You just keep doing what is right, one step after another. Just remember this, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of faith-taking action. It's overcoming victory. You know, even up against an incoming tsunami of apostasy or persecution. Courage is the grace of God and the mercy of God in operation in your soul as you're interacting with fellow Christians. You know what the first step is? Just fall on your knees before God in dependence on God. I think sometimes we get so busy trying to fight the pain or protect ourselves, we forget we're supposed to be leaning on a loving Savior. Yes, life is painful. Yes, people are gonna treat you badly. Yes, even in the church. And we are called to be courageous in our love, to bless people mercifully, to care with empathy, to foster and seek harmony and to walk in humility. This is the way of Jesus. And I ask myself the question, when have I experienced this? When have I experienced 
mercy and empathy and harmony and humility. And as a believer, I, I can honestly tell you every day in the body of Christ, no matter if people are blessing or cursing or happy or sad or like-minded or fractured or humble and gentle or haughty and proud, because I have mercy from Jesus, and then I get mercy through his merciful people. Because Jesus is merciful. See, Jesus is empathetic. We can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Jesus is our harmony. He himself is our peace. And Jesus is humble and gentle in heart. What a sweet tie-in to what he says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Christ we find rest for our souls. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you that you are merciful and you make us merciful. Thank you, Lord, that you are empathetic and you, you make us empathetic. Thank you that you are our peace, our harmony, and you, you cause us to seek peace. And thank you that you are humble and gentle in heart. And may we be as well, all by your grace and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.